0: So Matthew Buckley-Smith has me over at his house and is getting me prepared for the podcast. We're in our underwear. <laughs> oh, God. It's this kind of <laughs> But he insists on walking around the woods surrounding his house in our underwear. He's giddy and jumping from topic to topic. He's full of energy. He starts to show me many different martial arts stances. In the... Dr- in the dream, he's, he's taller than me and I don't think I can be as good a martial artist as he is. There are many seasons represented in the woods. We get back and Joanna and her friends start to show up and I'm embarrassed to be in my underwear. Matthew starts to make everyone an elaborate margarita. That's
1: it. <laughs> yeah, there there's some elements that seem you know, there's some true to Yeah. Thank you. I'm I, I, I fear that, that that some version of that will, will end up on a honestly uh, records t shirt at some point. But uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what's what, we'll see what the, the market demands. Sure.
0: <laughs> sure. I'd be happy to I'd be happy to illustrate that pro bono. <laughs>
1: I'm Matthew Buckley Smith, and you are listening to Slea Rickets. Thank you, as always, to all of you for listening, and to everyone who has left a rating, a review, or just subscribed to the show. Uh, it really means a lot. If you've not yet had a chance to do that, please go to Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast distributor might be. Leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe to the show, or if you just uh, if you have a chance sometime this week, recommend it to somebody you think might like it. I do appreciate it. But now I'm going to get to the today's main event, which is a really thoroughly delightful conversation I had with Steve Tier, a Philadelphia-based artist, illustrator, comics artist. He does a lot of his work is uh, writing comics, comic books, but also uh, comic strips. He has published in The New Yorker, in Vice, in The Believer, and very frequently in the nib and in any number of other publications, I have included in the show notes a slew of links to his work, and you can also keep up with his latest uh, his latest art on his Instagram feed, which is at Steve Tear S T E V E T E A R E. On today's show, though, he joined me as a lifelong comics fan, a lifelong lover of of mainstream and indie comics alike to present I think a pretty a pretty persuasive argument against taking superheroes seriously. Here is my really fun conversation with Steve Tier. You do comics and you do drawings and art of your own, but you also, like a very large part of your work seems to be illustration which has its own like musical accompaniment. It sort of has a, you have to have a philosophy to do it like of, of what it's supposed to be because it's a little bit of an open-ended question.
0: Yeah, it's it's true. Most of, uh, it, it's it's hard to even know what work I do is, is for myself because there seems to be, I've found, I've been able to find work that has almost like gradations of my own input, you know? So it's kind of like the whole artist thing. Like I remember when I was okay. in school, artists talking about like being able to find work where they're working on commission and then and then also just finding an audience so they could make their own fine art. And I feel like I I feel like I've found an odd thing where I do all kinds of combinations of those of those things. And I, I rarely actually do my own pure artwork just by my own i'm working on a comic now that i wrote and i don't it it, it's sort of it's perhaps the most pure pure art for me because i i don't know that it'll ever see any light of day i don't know if it will i don't know whose hands it's going to get into whereas like the comics that i do for hire i'm usually writing them and i'm usually also drawing them and the idea is usually mine so it's it's you know theoretically it's It's part of my own interest and and artwork, but it has a lot of editors hands in in it. And it has kind of like the aesthetic of the magazine or the website where it's supposed to be. And that's kind of drawing it farther away from me. And it becomes its own challenge to, well, to get it to the final stage where it can finally be uh, seen by other people. And I don't, it, it doesn't that process doesn't bother me but it but it's it is a little bit removed from my own desires I guess you could say
1: there there is a I mean a lot of the most celebrated art that we have throughout history was was commissioned so I I don't know I'm not sure if like we may overvalue independent no strings attached artistic vision in some ways like I think that it may be that, that that having a little bit of either restriction or having a, a platform, formally or pu- publicly or whatever is maybe part of the bargain to making, to
0: making art. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're obs- I mean, we're obsessed with ownership and uh, I feel like it's related to, to what we've been talking about in terms of these, these comics characters in the movies and the, and the TV shows and the things that that happen after them, because no one really owns any of these, any of these things. We're all just sort of involved in it. Uh,
1: so I knew, I knew I wanted to do an episode with you a little while ago, but I wasn't sure exactly what, about so you had what what to me at least at the moment was a was an unlikely suggestion that we've then talked a fair amount about, which was initially the teenage mutant ninja turtles. And right we, and we talked about that. And then we've also talked some about Batman and, and a few different incarnations. And so yeah. we, we have a I know at least however however small the audience might be, it has a pretty big range of ages. So would you just give a a a brief Overview of what what the fuck we're talking about? Like, what is sure? What yeah, to, from from scratch. What are the teenage yeah. <laughs> Ninja
0: Turtles? Well, I might not have I might not have to describe Batman. However, the Ninja Turtles were a first an independent and an independently printed uh, comic series uh, by a couple guys in I think it was New Hampshire, uh, a guy named Peter Laird and his partner Kevin Eastman, and they both illustrated and both wrote this this very kind of almost like a comics farce. It it was like a love letter to a lot of uh, gritty comics that had come before this. We're talking about the mid 1980s here, early 1980s. And it was sort of a love letter to uh, comics or TV shows like Conan, the Barbarian and uh, Frank Miller's Ronin and uh, the, the new mutants and the Marvel mutant varieties of, of characters and maybe a few others. And they somehow were they they did a few of these issues i think maybe 10 issues it was supposed to be a short-lived series they were financing it themselves i don't know how many they were selling initially and my understanding is the early i don't i haven't read the earliest issues but i think that they're they're a little violent and they're also kind of ridiculous The, the the comic the comic itself knows that it's ridiculous these sort of turtles that are supposed to be Fast mutant, and have uh, enemies within the city that somehow know who the turtles are and want to kill them. And they have a they have a sensei or a master that is a a rat. And uh, for the audience members, uh, that rat is named Splinter. But anyway, uh, shortly after the uh, the series got going, they met uh, uh, toy producers. It was it was a small toy company at the time, and they wanted to have a character that looked like maybe something like a a Ninja Turtle, and they tried it out, see if they could produce these these toys, and they were a success. The toy company also started to partner with cartoon producers, and a more kind of kid-friendly cartoon spawned out of that. And uh, most people who are around my age, I'm 35, probably know the Ninja Turtles through those action figures, And the uh, Saturday morning cartoon, which ran from the mid 80s, very shortly after this, this comic book was produced until I think the mid 90s. And uh, the first Ninja Turtles movie came out in 1989. So I hope that's a (laughs) a
1: the Yeah, same year as the Tim Burton Batman came out so you showed me a series of images and we're going to try to find a way to make this available we'll have some kind of link on the show notes for some images that you can see of the these various incarnations of the the characters but part of what struck me about it is that it was it's almost impossible to make it dignified because it's such a silly concept to begin with but then and then it is almost immediately turned into toys and cartoons and so it's almost like there's no uh, there's no like deep content to it it's just a, it's just a vehicle for style for one or another way of drawing and showing action and stories
0: right that's a great that's a great way to describe it and i have i have a lot of affection for the the first uh, i think it's like 40 let's say like 50 issues of the original printed series which was which was the independent publishing company that Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman made just called Mirage. Mirage Studios made the the initial you know run of these Ninja Turtle cartoons but it was happening almost like in the shadows while Turtle you know that it, it was like Turtle Mania that's what people used to say the toys were difficult to get sometimes I think there were you know there were newsworthy incidents of of um, people fighting over the release <laughs> of the of the Ninja Turtle toys when they would come out. Simultaneous to all of that development, this this comic book series was was continuing, and it was supposed to be for adults. and It's hard for me to know how they were consumed and how they were thought of during that time because I was too young to uh, to know about it. I started collecting these as kind of like when I got a little bit older. It's like, oh, I want to find like you know the adult version of the of the Ninja Turtle, So I would go and seek these things out. And what I found was, you know, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman just sort of, they just kind of threw up their hands and they're just like, all right, we're, we're, we've got a huge hit. And so we're just gonna kind of manage this phenomenon and we're gonna leave it up to other writers and, and artists to take on the Ninja Turtle story. And that's what happens. So if you, if you try and find any of these issues, you'll find a, a huge range of, of approaches and, and like you say, styles and also like themes and atmospheres. Like there are a couple issues of the Ninja Turtles that the atmosphere is kind of like back to the future or something like that. There are a couple of them where it's it's supposed to be like a really bloody manga, like a Japanese comic. And and there are other ones that are like Dawson's Creek or something where there's like, there's no action at all. It's, it's and, and some of these elements made it into the first movie. If you watch the first movie, there's this weird little middle section where there's these little montages where the turtles are crying and they're they're just kind of sitting around. They're depressed and and yeah, they have real turtle tears on their turtle faces. It's 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 ridiculous. Like the movie itself is ridiculous.
1: There, there was there's a recurring bit that's come up in the last year or two on Saturday Night Live where they'll have these little animated segments of. Uh, middle-aged mutant ninja turtles have you seen these
0: no i, I should see that. yeah
1: but it's and, and they, i mean and it's fairly funny partly because it's it's like one of the ninja turtles has testicular cancer and like then one of the ninja turtles has like a bad divorce and like his daughter won't speak to him anymore like he's he's like overweight or he's it's ennui and boredom and mm-hmm. and sort of ordinary grown-up problems projected onto this absolutely ridiculous absurd premise uh, but it seems like that's almost like that was actually already Baked into some of the original, it sounds like. Like that's that's almost not a a spoof. That's that's like that's a they were already doing that to themselves.
0: It's true. And that's also what's what I feel like is happening with Batman. I was talking about I was talking about it with a friend of mine yesterday, actually, and he was saying it's almost as if, you know, we need it's like we need some of the things of our past to to play a role in in all areas of our lives. Batman can't just be you know, sort of a mythological superhero. He also has to kind of represent like the fight against terrorism.
1: There's a, a, at this point, pretty hackneyed argument that we should treat superhero movies or superhero stories sort of as a a, a pure vehicle for all of our most serious ideas and myths because they are the equivalent to the Greek myths or the Norse myths. And then I think as plenty of people, other people have pointed out, one of the big big differences between the between comic book heroes and greek myths is that comic book heroes are copyrighted like somebody does own them it's not yeah. it's not one individual artist who has a vision mm-hmm. though sometimes that you know a, a certain incarnation will be turned over to the in, the the vision of an individual artist but it is a it is a company's property, and there's. You sent me a really wild and fascinating review by Armand White of the yeah. of, of the Christopher Nolan 2008 movie The Dark Knight. Oh yeah, and I I just re- I rewatched it, uh, both that and the, the the original Tim Burton Batman, which he, he much preferred. Mm-hmm. But the I'd forgotten about this sequence in the Nolan movie right at the beginning, where he beats the shit out of and. And like locks up a bunch of uh, off-brand Batmans. Mm, yeah, like they're like they're they're who are. I mean, in one point he like he bends the barrel of a gun. Like Batman doesn't use guns, but that's really more of a style question because he uses plenty mm-hmm. of like incredibly deadly weapons. So mm-hmm. it, it it's like he they're they're fucking up his brand, where mm-hmm. they're it's like they're violating trademark and. When one of them says, "Well, we're just trying to help you. We're, you know, you're a symbol." It's like they're they're almost making the Greek myth argument. And his response is, "Well, you know, why why can't we join you?" This response is, "I don't wear hockey pads. Like, oh, I, my, I have like I have a better budget than you do. I have better he production." Does. <laughs> right, and he does, he does. And so there's something like there is something like almost uncomfortably corporate about it. From from the oh, guy. Yeah. so, yeah. but all right. So so let's let's talk. From we'll just we'll start with the Armand White, and we can spin out from there. Sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So are, I
0: don't, I don't have to give a, a description of what Batman is, right?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. It's, it's a very, very old DC uh, comics yeah. property. And, and then, uh, 19, 1939, 1939.
0: 1939.
1: Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so predated by Superman, but, but still quite old and uh, was, was there was a very, very popular uh, a children's live action show starring Adam West that is it oh, yes. is extremely silly and there's there's nothing menacing or sinister about it it's just a very goofy self i guess self aware i mean it has to be self aware so it's been, it's,
0: it's been i haven't seen it since i was a kid mm-hmm, yeah uh, Defin- definitely definitely self aware and you know i've been i've been reading the past couple of days as if i as if i've been preparing for a class today uh, <laughs> but i was reminded of the comics code are you familiar with the with the comics code um, is this like
1: like the Hayes Code, but for comics.
0: Exactly, yeah, yeah. And oh, it okay, came yeah. out there. There was a uh, there was an author. Gee, I had it up here on my other computer. It was a book called Seduction of the Innocent, uh, and it was, it was sort of focused on the kind of the erotic, or maybe like un un sort of hidden eroticism of comics, and the violence, and and it sort of led to this campaign that eventually resulted in, in a nationwide comics code that, you know, really restricted, uh, I guess, the creativity of, of comics creators. Uh, but it lasted for a while and it also just really restricted the, the economy of, of, of selling comics. And this guy's name was Frederick Wertham. And he, he also, there's a section in the book apparently where he talks about the, uh, sort of the hidden homosexual agenda of, uh, of Batman and his relationship with, with the boy Wonder Robin.
1: Right, right, right. right. I mean, which has been much spoofed and and discussed, and mm-hmm. like plenty of people have have pointed out the the you know maybe parallels to the like r- rich older single gentleman and the the young male companion. Sure, part, yeah. there does seem to be like a real maybe maybe one of the, the the questions with with comics that that this guy seems to have had no sense of humor about is that there does seem to be a real difference between. What you're hinting at or playing with, and what mm-hmm. you're and and like and what you are instructing people in, right? like I think you could have mm-hmm. shades of innuendo without having an agenda for sure, for sure.
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the benefits of having both like having both a visual and a, and a written narrative uh, uh, together. Um, that's that's why you know comics and films sometimes work in similar. Ways and have a few different things going on at the same time.
1: Yeah. So, so we you you, you sent me a progression of uh, specifically of Batmobiles, which are the I I, I want to see if we can just make these three images available because it has, it is pretty <laughs> it's pretty striking. The
0: I, I think it tells the story better than I could. <laughs> oh man, yeah.
1: The, the just sort of souped up uh, goofy sports car uh, of the Adam West version. The big long truly still like extremely phallic and also just really cool looking as you said art art deco uh, joke i mean it's it's sort of a joke uh, mm-hmm. but the, the tim burton batmobile is it's just an awesome piece of design yeah and then,
0: all, all of the tim burton is, is art deco which, which oh, is probably man. why which is probably why i'm drawn to it i'm just sort of a yeah. deco fan
1: and then and then the the christopher nolan batmobile which is it's really not a Batmobile. It's just—it's just this big, joyless, stylus tank. It's just this, yes, you know, military yeah. industrial machine. Yeah. With no, there's no. Like, <laughs> yeah. You you know you could you could see uh, you could see both Adam West and Michael Keaton uh, picking up ladies or or gentlemen in in those Batmobiles. Yeah. The Christopher Nolan one is no. This is for like crushing villagers. I mean, this, there's
0: no. This is yeah. This no. is nation nation destroying nation <laughs>
1: invading. No, exactly. So, so there, there was this this progression from from the Adam West version. which We're calling it the Adam West version. He he was the star of it, but it was it was yeah. very uh, goofy. And they even had, I think, uh, they became one of their their uh, devices. They became much mocked for and, cel- and celebrated, I guess, was having uh, r- little cartoon jagged uh, a, a speech balloons mm-hmm. of yeah. Word-level speech balloons. Uh, on, yeah, yeah, onomatopoeic speech balloons. Whap, bam, whap, pow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would appear on screen in the midst of the this the very hokey, uh, stagey fights.
0: Yeah, with uh, surf rock music uh, in the background, generally. Yeah, <laughs>
1: right. And which, I, I mean, I watched as a kid. They were reruns by then, but I, I watched those as a kid. And they were fun, silly. I mean, they were effectively live-action cartoons. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. And then Tim Burton in 1989 came out with this this other vision, which I think at the time, I was seven when it came out and it was basically it just blew my mind. Like it was the coolest thing I could imagine at that oh age gosh, yeah. when I saw it in the theater and it was, you know, re-watching it now, it is much more silly and goofy and more aware of itself than, than I was, you know, at that age. But it is, it is, it's extremely stylish. It is funny. Uh, and I'd say it, it is not, it has just enough seriousness to be a little bit, to have a little bit, basically like not to be boring. If you're a grown-up watching it with your kid, mm. um, but it's not. There's never any like deep dread. It doesn't ever really ask any like profound moral questions. It's it's mostly just like an exercise in. In style, and, and you—you know—you pointed earlier. We're not going to get into it really in this conversation. But you pointed earlier to the, the Susan Sontag uh, article notes on camp, which is a terrific mm-hmm. read. I'm, I'm definitely going to link to it. It's definitely worth worth uh, reading. But it is—if it is—if she says it's impossible to be self-aware, to be self-consciously campy. Mm-hmm. But if you could be that, that would be the Tim Burton version. For sure, uh, it's, it's it's just like a delicious fun, silly, exciting Mm
0: -hmm. movie
1: that doesn't, it doesn't pretend to be anything more than what it is for the most part.
0: Yeah. It basically, it, it sort of in a healthy way, digested all because already there were so many kinds of Batman styles and, and incarnations by the time Tim Burton's film came around. It had, I think even before the TV show, it had jumped back and forth a little bit between being kind of gritty and being focused on the the vigilante aspect of Batman, sort of being outside the law. I was reading that there were early issues where he would use guns, he shot and killed villains. But eventually, as it became more popular, there were just more decisions to sort of to to make him more of a of a citizen and and concerned with citizens and, and concerned with Gotham. There's a, I think Batman's pretty interesting when when he's he seems to. Uh, think that in in a way he sort of embodies Gotham. And but it also it it does not lead. I mean Adam West and and that TV show I think is core to Tim Burton's Batman. And that's that's what I really that's what I really appreciate about it, I
1: think. Yeah, oh yeah. And it 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 is funny because he he does he does his little batarangs and and grappling hooks and things. So he he has all these tools that are not quite guns, but sort of gun-like in some respects. But he 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 exercises, you know he He uses these all throughout much of the movie, but as it as it approaches its its climax, he murders tons of people in that movie. (laughs) He blows up a factory full of people. He has (laughs) he throws a guy down a bell tower. But but part of the part of what uh, I think makes it allows it to stay light is that it's never really serious. Mm -hmm. Like almost everything is still sort of a joke and sort of a it's it's still a little bit bam pow wap. Uh, mm-hmm. even even though you know it, it just sort of it just takes a you know a, a slightly more grown-up amplification in excitement but it's mm. it isn't it, there's not a it was interesting seeing that seeing the two these the so the the Burton and the Nolan back to back because in the in the Burton he 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 wipes out a ton of criminals and he kills he says he tells this joker I'm gonna kill you and he does kill him but it's there is a sense that that the joker is super evil but in a totally silly sort of arbitrary way and batman is good and that he's fighting against him but there's not like a, there's no real deep question of morality there's no batman doesn't have a code in any sense other than having kind of a sense of style mm-hmm. and he's not really a he's not even necessarily like a deeply moral person he's sort of like a, a slightly out to lunch rich guy mm-hmm. who who like sort of accidentally sleeps with a reporter, and I mean, he he's sort of <laughs> a little bit like he's a, a kind of in some ways like a classic Michael Keaton, like ch- charmingly nerdy, absent-minded, bumbling character who also beats people up at night in a costume.
0: I, I think I think it's illustrated um, wonderfully in some I think some of the earliest moments of the film where where Bruce Wayne. Is depicted uh, sort of in his element. He's throwing a party. I can't remember what the party is for. Some sort of fundraising event, maybe. Um, but he spots Kim Basinger, who's the uh, uh, who's the journalist that he sort of has his eye on, and he's sort of following her around his mansion. And uh, his live-in servant uh, Alfred is is following him around, making sure everything is sort of okay at the party. And and Michael Keaton, who's Oh, just amazing as 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 uh, this character is, he has, I think, a drink and a plate of food in his hand. And he's, he's so fixated on Kim Basinger, he's sort of following her around. And without thinking about it, he's just trying to put his drink down and he sort of puts it on the edge of a pool table. It immediately starts to slip off. Alfred rushes in, picks it up real quick. And then he puts the plate of food just on the edge of the table. He doesn't know what it's doing with, what he's doing with it. And then that starts to fall off, Alfred, <laughs> He's he's not aware of his surroundings, and I think the movie, and I think other maybe TV, like TV shows and comic books make a point of of uh, shining a light on how Batman is kind of a stunted his 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 maturity is stunted, uh, perhaps probably because his parents were killed when when he was uh, a kid, and he has this kind of child's uh, idea of of how to spend money and and just the very fact that he decides to become a superhero in order to honor his dead parents is, it, 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 I feel like the, sh- the show, maybe it's just by imagination, but I really feel like there are some incarnations of, of, the, of the Batman franchise where it's, it's aware of the, of the fact that Batman is sort of childish, that he is kind of uh, ridiculous, and that he is putting himself out there in a silly way instead of doing what he should have done, which is grieve.
1: Right. right. Yeah. His, his, his parents are killed in front of him and it's depicted a million different times, a million different ways, but, but basically right. they're, they're shot coming out of a movie for sort of, for no reason or for, for their wallets or whatever. Uh, and it's, and then he does have a kind of, as other people have pointed out, he, he does have a, an obsession with street level crime that for the, yeah. like, there are some super villains, but mostly like Batman likes to beat up on poor street criminals. Mm, Uh, He's not, he's not, you know, he seldom does he really bust white collar crime. The, the Nolan version picks up on some of those themes, but in a way that is, I I developed a, a little bit of a theory of it, but we can talk some about it. So, so Christopher Nolan in in 2004, I think put out a movie called Batman Begins, which was a, a kind of a new origin story of Batman, way more intense and serious and grim, than the Tim Burton, and there's there. I will say that I, I quite like Christian Bill as an actor. Boy, he has no fun in these movies. <laughs> he is, he is, he, there's there's not a lick of genuine. I mean, Tim Burton and and definitely Jack Nicholson. Just eat up every scene they're in. They're just having a blast, and there's no, yeah. there's a lot of bodybuilding and no fun for mm. for, for Christian Bale. But then the, <laughs> the, the, the Dark Knight was the the standout of the the three uh, movies that Christopher Nolan put out um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in 2008. The the two villains of this version were H- Harvey Dent and then and then most memorably the Joker played by Heath Ledger in his his last performance on film. So Ar- Armand White. Uh, this was a cr- critically beloved. It was a huge hit. It was it was a um, popular by by just about every uh, metric you could identify. And Armand White, who is a uh, a career long contrarian, put yes. out a an absolute. Uh, I, I hesitate to call it a hatchet job because it's not like it hurt the movie, but it is the it is the most severe thumbs down of a movie review I may I may ever. Have read, especially for an extremely popular and beloved movie. Armand White, by the way, fascinating, strange. Guy. He he has to be the only writer who has ever been on the staff of both Out Magazine and the National Review.
0: Yeah, that's that's yeah yeah absolutely. That's necessary knowledge when you're going into a uh, uh, a review by Armand White. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's, he, it's, it's, he, it's almost impossible. <laughs>
1: he he loves to champion movies that. Critics despised. He's like a big, big booster of the worst of Adam Sandler's movies. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then, and then he and he and he loves shitting on uh on really popular movies. Yeah, which again, I like. I it's sort of like 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 Batman. Like I I don't know if Armand White is like a force for good, but I I want to live in a world where he exists. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so his the, the the I was trying to pull a, a couple of decent quotes from his review. He says the Dark Knight is not an adventure movie with a driven protagonist. It's a goddamn psychodrama in which Batman slash Bruce Wayne's neuroses compete with two alter egos, Gotham City's law and order district attorney Harvey Dent and master criminal the Joker. All three personifying the contemporary distrust of virtue. He he has a a, a, a sort of a slightly muddled thesis about how. The presence of nihilistic violence in this movie is a is a is an argument for nihilism and emptiness, and he kind of says it's all teenage hip Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. pseudo existentialism. He does. I'll say he he gives the game away a little bit by having just about nothing good to say about it like he's yeah. he's like and the Joker's too mean and Heath Ledger's not really a good actor and yeah. Maggie Gyllenhaal has bad posture <laughs> like, right oh God, just slow down like there's some yeah. there's some virtues as well
0: he equates it with there will be blood the sort of joyless. oh there will be blood right yeah yeah, yeah. and, um, and the, the the
1: the two antagonists the no hero
0: yeah i would say for the for the most part i feel pretty animated by this by this review uh because I think Armand White is in agreement with with my love of of Burton. And I think he does a good, he he manages to to slip in what Burton uh, achieved. And he said, uh, he says, remember how Tim Burton's 1989 interpretation of the comic superhero wasn't quite good enough? Yet Burton attempted something dazzling, a balance of scary satirical mood, which he nearly perfected in the 1992 Batman Returns. I think I agree with that. That gave substance to a pop culture totem Enhancing it without sacrificing its delight, Burton didn't need to repeat the tongue-in-cheek 1960s uh, TV series. Being romantically in touch with bat, uh, Catwoman, Bruce Wayne, and the Penguin's loneliness was richer. He, he, and and he's I think I think he's also he's turned off by what appears like nihilism in in the Dark Knight. And I don't want to. Uh, sound like a conspiracy theorist, but uh, I think that same sort of sensibility that he's feeling, I feel like I see that in a lot of films, specifically action adventure, sci-fi films. He mentions post 9-11, it, maybe it is a post 9-11 phenomenon, this kind of everything is fucked, sort of. I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost like, it's the air that a lot of characters uh, uh, breathe in, in, in these in these films and, and in these and, and in these reboots of, of uh, ridiculous costumed uh, uh, superheroes and I remember going to see that I was I was enthusiastic like everyone else to see Heath Ledger's performance uh, I I don't remember being wowed by Batman begins but I you know I went to a very packed theater to see the dark Knight and I remember being pretty entertained and and just kind of it, it, it's the, the tone of it is almost sort of, was, was sort of the shocking quality to me. It's just like, wow, they definitely went dark. But as I've had some time to just get older and think a little bit more about this, um, I do find myself agreeing with him. But I, I guess maybe I, I think he goes so far, I think maybe he goes a little too far in saying that uh, Batman needs to, be, needs to have morals. I'm not so sure I, I would make that claim. Uh, I don't really think that Batman needs to do anything. And in fact, I think like I like I said to you before uh, we started today, I even think that Batman can be a Christopher Nolan type Batman. I guess the thing that sort of bums me out about Nolan's Batman is that every, so many movies feel like they're trying to be. They're trying to have that kind of Nolan atmosphere, and it's been a long time now, and I, I don't see any any end to it. There's a new Batman movie coming out. I think it was delayed because of the pandemic um, with Robert Pattinson. Angela and I watched the trailer to that, and that seems even grimmer. It seems even <laughs> gloomier. And I, there's not going to be any dance sequences in this in this new. Uh, Batman movie I I mean I mean like maybe I'll be eating my words uh when I when I see this but you know I I like Robert Pattinson too
1: so so I I had a um a a theater director years ago uh told me that the the first and maybe most important job of any actor is to create interest Mm. and and I think that sort of can go for almost any kind of artist and and that to me is like that's that's almost the, t- the whole story of the Tim Burton Batman start to finish. And it's it's definitely, that's the thing is like Armand White shits on Heath Ledger, which is a fine contrarian take. But like the thing about Heath Ledger's performance is that it's just fun to watch. It's just, it creates interest. It's, you can argue that it's inconsistent. You can argue that it's, that his, his, I'll say his performance is way better than the dialogue he delivers. Hmm. It's, it's just, it's a, it's just totally scene chewing scenery chewing. Uh, fun, fun to watch performance, not so much, you know, Christian Bale's. But it, I think, my yeah, my um, my feeling watching it again was not necessarily that I wanted Batman to have a certain set of morals. I don't think Tim Burton's Batman really has a very consistent set of morals. No, he's just he's just again, he's just fun to watch. The the thing that I, I found increasingly bothering me about the the Nolan Batman is actually that Batman has has excessively consistent morals. That that's the thing. It's like. Erwin White points out that the the violence is really big and intense and loud and thunderous, but mm-hmm. it's never really realistic. That's partly a an artifact of the the rating because it's PG thirteen. It yeah. can't have it can't quite have gore, which means you can have just enough violence to really give people a sense that a lot of people are getting killed, but never really make it feel uncomfortably real <laughs> so in a way it's sort of it's the worst of both worlds because it's like it's it's very easy to just knock people off without feeling bad about it but, uh, and what, but and
0: what does it mean that the uh in in 1989 you know jack nicholson's joker is using kind of like uh wily e. coyote type uh, uh tools and stuff to kill people but the violence is very i don't know if it's realistic but it's it's memorable it's gory and, and there's it's a 19, more, yeah, there's... 1989 version of pg-13 I think it's a yeah. little bit more violent than our than our modern pg are <laughs> well in it
1: and it's violent by being su- suggestive. So there are mm. like you, you don't see the the you know the newscaster die of a seizure, but you do see her like contorted, grinning rictus of a face afterward. <laughs> and just like that, the specific physical quality there, and they make a whole point of how it's in the cosmetics. And then he he like uses a hand buzzer to fry a guy to just like, a, you don't Precisely. really, it's very, it's a cartoonish death, but then like the, the, the blackened smoldering skeleton afterward oh, is sort sure. of horrifying. So oh, yeah. yeah, it's, it is, um, you're right. I think in a way he, he gets around the rating by, by suggestion. I mean, there's like, there's also like a lot more pretty uh, adult sexual suggestion in the, in oh, the sure. Tim Burton version in a way that in Christopher Nolan's, it's almost like there's, it's 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 almost puritanical the the oh, that's the purity <laughs> of it. Well, and I think and it's not even like Batman needs to make sure that people don't die. Tons of people die. Tons of mm. civilians die. Yeah. But but in the in the Christopher Nolan version, it's really important that Batman maintain his own moral code. That they yeah. turn this kind of like this question of using grappling hooks and batarangs rather than bullets. Into this this profound and a totally consistent moral code, where he will never kill anybody, and that's what the Joker really, really wants to get him to do. Tons mm. of people die, but he maintains his purity uh,
0: in this yeah. way. That it feels, yeah.
1: in a way, like that's more disturbing than if he were just trying to, you know, uh, throw the throw the Joker off of a off of a, a bell tower. And and the the thing that I, I found myself thinking in the the Nolan version is that it is almost as if like if Jeff Bezos made a movie it might be the Christopher Nolan Batman Dark Knight movie because in a way it's like, well, the super, super rich guy who seems to totally, because he has all these performances where he seems to be completely out to lunch. His public persona is very scrupulously one of a rich prick who doesn't give a shit about anybody else. Uh, he's surveilling everybody. He's tapped everybody's cell phones. He, <laughs> operates, he <laughs> operates independent of the law. He's 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 more, you know he he has he doesn't respect the jurisdiction of like a police districts or even of countries. He totally he kidnaps a guy out of China arbitrarily because he feels like it. He does absolutely whatever he wants. He is, has like hand in glove with the military, but mm. secretly underneath it all, even if you think he's evil, and then wait, like that's the that's the moral of the story for me is like the the at the end the the dumb public thinks that Batman is evil but really we know deep down underneath it all he's really really pure of heart you me to me like in a way it's almost this like propaganda piece for like big corporations and like bi- and like homeland security like well i know oh. you think it's evil but secretly yeah. if you knew at the heart of heart we're really the good guys and you can trust us just shut up and and yeah. eat your you know eat your oatmeal
0: i think your your words remind me a lot of david graeber are you familiar you, with
1: no uh, david, no 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 david
0: graeber he died last year um he was an anarchist um Uh, American writer and and teacher living in England, and he wrote a book called Debt, uh, and he sort of wrote wrote a book kind of like picking apart uh, an an economist's understanding of human history. And he also wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs about kind of like modern middle management corporates level work and the labor involved or the lack of labor involved, uh, the lack of meaning and involvement. And then I think one of his last books was just a collection of his essays, uh, mostly around bureaucracy, but he had this really just lovely piece about Batman. And it's specifically about Nolan's Batman. He says that Nolan's Batman takes, takes a lot takes, takes a, a quite a bit from the, the vast history of Batman, but he focuses on the policeman within Batman. Uh, or the status quo keeping element of Batman. And Batman is essentially anti-creative. Uh, he needs <laughs> he needs things to to stay the same, and that the creative forces in the world of Batman are all the villains that he comes into contact. In fact in fact I think there's even, there's even like uh, shades of uh, Occupy Wall Street and the third uh, Nolan oh, movie. the
1: third one is, is like almost like an anti uh, Bernie Sanders movie like it's weirdly anti socialist oh, yeah. in this
0: bizarre bizarre way do you know that whole dark reality of one of the bridges that there was a heavy heavy police presence to to keep the occupy protesters out but then then it was like months later that bridge was allowed to be used to depict scenes in The the Dark Knight Rises.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. This,
0: of course, was described in David Graber's essay about Batman. And I I haven't gotten to it yet myself, but I've been meaning to rewatch at least some of the Batman animated series from the 1990s, which was another big. Th- I don't know if you watched that. I, I, yes, I
1: did. I did see some of that as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which pretty, was, Which was like stylish. It was like, like it a was fun, stylish. Yeah.
0: Definitely takes its aesthetics from Tim Burton's Deco, sort of like basically the 1920s and 30s plus computers. You know, it has this odd sort of no time where it lives. You know, and there are several episodes where I feel like just like uh, Batman Returns with the uh, with Danny DeVito's Penguin. The, the narrative is completely focused on the villain to the point where inevitably at the end where the villain is is either intentionally or usually unintentionally killed by Batman. Batman might like try to save the villain at the end, but some, some sort of disaster happens and the villain uh, dies. And you, you get so sort of involved and uh, attached to these villains and their backstories, which are usually, you know, they're usually bottom up as opposed to Batman's top-down origin story, that you're heartbroken at the end of (laughs) this. And seeing that, that was one of my early theater moments is going to see Batman Returns with Danny DeVito. Most of that, I don't know if if, uh, Michael Keaton has more running time than Danny DeVito as as the Penguin. You see a lot of the Penguin. I think it, it begins with him as a child and his parents trying to, I don't know, just like do away with them because he was a little freak and uh, his his tragic death just like it did something to me as a as a kid when i when i when i saw that i you know i was not i was not happy when batman was able to kill all the all the villains at the end i think i think catwoman make, makes her makes your way out of it. I was pretty, I was pretty torn up.
1: Yeah. which And, and so, so there is a, and I, I mentioned this before the, the leftist nerd podcast struggle session there. They have done a couple of episodes on the, the contrast they tend to talk most about is between the Marvel cinematic universe movies and the Zack Snyder DC yeah, uh, movies and or the, and the sort of Zack Snyder Solar System of DC movies, which are which are dark and gloomy in a particular way. Their, their argument, which I you know I don't know if I buy it entirely, but I think their argument is that, that basically all superhero movies are intrinsically fascistic. Like what you're saying is that what we really need to solve our problems is a an all powerful strong man who. To whom we are, you know, mere mice, uh, and that we can, we just need to make sure we facilitate him and don't get in his way while he saves the day. I mean, Superman being being like a a, literally a Nietzschean figure, and and so their argument is actually that it is better to to let that be overt, to let the Mm. darkness and the cruelty and the Mm. fascism of it be on the face of it, so that you just you just accept it. When you walk into the theater, the, yeah. you're watching an entertainment. You're not going to actually say, "I want to be like this" or "I want this to exist." <laughs> you're just saying, "Like I, I know I'm watching, I'm watching cartoon characters smash each other." Whereas with the with the the Marvel uh, movies, I think their argument is that it it sort of tries to cajole you in with cool banter into thinking, "Like yeah, they, we're like the good guys. It's fine. You can you can trust us. We're I'm Iron Man, whom you who your friend, Iron Man." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, it's worth, it's worth listening to, to some of their arguments about it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it, yeah, it, it does seem like, yeah, I, th- I think like that, that's where I do quite disagree. I think with Armand White in that I I'm, I'm in a way, I mean, just, dis- I'm, I'm skeptical of morality taught through superhero stories, but you're, <laughs> so you have, a, well, but you have a much longer back and deep and like richer background with superhero stories and comics. So what do you think about as like, what do you think about the, the, the the moral psychological cultural role of figures like this like wh- is yeah. there something they should do other than just be cool and entertain is there some, yeah. how else should they should they complicate our sense of you know our our own actual selves in any way
0: yeah yeah I think like you like you said before there you know superhero stories are they're pretty dirty to begin with because they are uh, they're products um, I think that there is magic to be witnessed in the fact that there are there are so many creative voices involved uh, in all these stories and they can take them in so many different directions. And it's fascinating to watch how how they shift. They ultimately are um, uh, products. And I think, you know, it's, it, it can be pretty obnoxious to see um, just the, you know, the the clip between reboots is getting shorter and shorter anymore Uh, that there's, you can barely catch your breath before a new reboot comes out. And so, just the obvious, like cash grab nature of reprinting superhero films is is disturbing. That's a pretty interesting take from the from the struggle session. I have listened to, I think their takes on like video games, which I which I've enjoyed, but I haven't heard them talk about Zack Snyder. And I, and honestly, I haven't seen a lot of the Zack Snyder stuff, but I do know about how he's more upfront, in the Marvel. <laughs> like i i've heard like the marvel i i try to stay away from the marvel cinematic universe stuff but i know that they're um uh the costumes are kind of they've got a little bit of a military chic going on but yeah i mean that whole like i think both dc and marvel producers are will be the first to say that like these are our modern myths and uh I think that's going a little too far. Uh, They're not, you know, they don't work. Because
1: we don't, we don't, we can't, we can't tell our version of them. We can't adopt them and change them, right? Yeah,
0: precise. I mean, I mean, like we can to a certain, to a certain extent, but not, not really, you know, you could do do your own slash fiction.
1: Right. Um, Yeah, this is true.
0: (laughs) I think in the David Graber piece, he also talks about just the fact that comic books at, at a certain point became, you know, there was a time before Detective Comics, before they were influenced by like massive, massive Zoro and other like radio dramas and stuff like that. It became it became much more focused on teenage boys or or even younger than that. Just maybe prepubescent boys it became a uh, it became the focus of of the whole comic book universe. And and it and in some ways the more modern uh, phenomenon of like graphic novels is is a way to try to like go back to the the earlier pluralist landscape of of comics that it could really be anything within within reason but you know comics were used to just tell stories any 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 story really but there there became a point in uh i guess the 1940s something like that 1930s 1940s where there were these sort of fantastical characters much like the struggle sessions the description of like you know perhaps maybe a, a, a fascist, um, all-powerful being Superman, being the the clear archetype there. It, and and then, you know, when people hear that I do comics, I think that's what they hear, and they, that's what they see in their minds still to this day. They're seeing, okay, are you, yeah, you're doing like, okay, you like, uh, what do you like, Marvel? You like DC? You like Image? You know, what do you, I was pretty snooty about it through my 20s. I was like, well, I don't read any comics that have, superheroes anymore i'm an i'm an adult you know and i find myself like going back to superheroes now i guess just because i like this tension that we're describing now i like the fact that it's it's inherently like kind of a dirty thing it's supposed to it it has its birthplace in, in, in being only for boys or something and it's, yeah. and only, you know, for, for young boys, even if it was, uh, unconscious at the time, it's supposed to, maybe it was supposed to make them patriotic or maybe it was supposed to make them sort of, uh, you know, like self-making or something.
1: Public perception of comics has changed a lot since like I was a teenager and they've become more and more considered an art form that can do a lot of different things. Did, yeah, I wonder, is there something, um either intrinsic to the medium or or to the tradition that allows for a a certain level like a certain detachment from reality or a certain super real uh quality that whether it whether you're dealing with superheroes or not it and whether it's explicitly campy or not it allows for a different kind of storytelling like people have said that, that there's in a, in a certain sense the novel is the most there is a there is a realism that is achievable in a novel that's not achievable in any other medium because because you inhabit it with your mind and you can inhabit yeah. the character's mind and you know yeah. with your own and and obviously different media have, uh, have different strengths now that comics are no longer considered like trash art what is the <laughs> what do you see as being like a, a, a defining Quality of their of them formally, or 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 by the way of the tradition.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the possibilities are <laughs> are limitless uh, with comics because just the drawing style, I think, just sort of changes everything. And I think it's really hard to know how comics live in in the audience's minds. because there's just there, there's so many things going on at the same time. Maybe the most popular comics, and and maybe some, like. People that don't read comics regularly, they might come across some well-known comics, even into their even into their adult life. You know, comics that they think like, "Well, these, this is a sophisticated graphic novel. I could I could read this. I've, this is not for a child. This is for me." I think they tend to be all generally the same format, which is very cinematic, uh, almost working like a a glorified storyboard, and that's totally acceptable to me. That's a style of of comic, but it's it's just, just like that's not the only way that you, you need to make a film, there's so many different ways you can you can sort of work your your comic. The the most memorable comics I've I've read are are not quite cinematic. They sort of steer you around they steer your eye around the page. They decorate the, the frames. They do things to the word bubble. The design of the word bubbles are not just a, um, a secondary thing. They become sort of part of the, of the artwork and they sort of, they sort of do things to the, the cadence of the, of the page. And you sort of, you start to hear what's going on a little bit. I could, I could give, you know, the listener a few examples. When I, when I was a kid reading comics, my favorite comic was a comic called the max uh, by Sam Keith. So a lot of people might know the MTV cartoon, uh, the max and yeah, I don't know if I like it as much as I did when I was a kid, but I, I still feel that sort of like intense teenage nostalgia when I when I read the Max now. I'm actually going going back through it these days. Sam Keith kind of blew my mind because he changed how, he, he changed the actual mediums he was using from page to page. He would sometimes uh, use oil paint and collage on on certain pages. He would sometimes just, just use, it, it would look like a Charles Schultz, like... Uh, <laughs> You know, a lot, a lot of little panels, and he would kind of purposefully draw quickly, and and have sort of a naive uh, look to the to the pages. So, I, I think the just what's possible with the with the visuals and with how you are representing communication. You don't have to use words. There's a lot of like brilliant. Wordless comics out there. But just the possibilities of that are, 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 are just kind of like, well, it's overwhelming. And it's, I think that, that that's what stops up a lot of independent cartoonists when they sit down to it. I think we, much like we were talking about, like with just ownership at the beginning of this conversation, I think we, we tend to. Give the highest respect to people that do everything alone, where right. they they write and draw everything, they edit everything. It's an enormous amount of labor. and I could tell you like any chance I get to have some assistance with my comics, I'll take it <laughs> because I I mean I've been working I'm, I'm finishing up a 20 page comic. It's only 20 pages. it'll take it'll take you a, a you know just a, a bathroom break to go through this comic that I'm that I'm working on now. And but I, I wrote it years ago, and just the process of editing, the the script i had having people take a look at the scripts, which is very helpful for me kind of designing the characters looking at google maps street view deciding where i want (laughs) to place this you don't have to go through this this amount of labor but you can really get caught up in the in the details of it and uh, i'm not so sure that it needs to be a a single artist working on this i think it, it just because of the complexity of it it can be much like a film where there's a lot of hands and there's a lot of eyes on it. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be like one genius's
1: concept. I think the part of the beauty of film is that it is a, like, uh, as, as Aristotle said of the epic, which which combines the lyric and the dramatic with the uh, narrative, the you know film combines all of these different art forms uh, in the, you know, the you, acting and writing and physical design and costuming and all all these different forms as with theater get combined into one with the added element of, of film. But the, the, I mean, I think particularly as the medium has developed, the reality of it is that what that means is that the real obstacle to making it is, is money. Like you have to have a shit ton of money to make a movie. And it seems like whether, whether you, whether you translate it into money or into time, with a comic, as you said, like it's an enormous amount of work and and there's there's not really an essential reason that one person needs to do all of it, except maybe that if it's not one person doing it, if it's a big team of people doing it, then that's then somebody's paying for all of that. Yeah. And so then it belongs to some big someone with the money to pay all sure. of those
0: people. So yeah.
1: it's like it, it either ends up being a lone wolf kind of laboring for for hours and years, mm-hmm. or or it's this big team. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, d- I had not thought about the 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 spacing and the presentation of the, yeah, um, the layout of the, of the, well and specifically of the of the words I mean of the dialogue And mm. it, I mean I, I've I've read some comic books of various types less of the classic superhero stuff than nerdy pretentious comics but I do I mean there, there are a lot of as you said there are a lot of sort of interesting tricks you can use with the contrast between, say, the the presentation of the dialogue and the presentation of the speech you know, balloon itself, oh, yeah. and, as well yeah. as where it falls on the page. And that is the devices that are used in presenting speech, particularly in a comic book, are, I would say, actually pretty similar specifically to free verse poetry. And oh, in that, like, the way line breaks tend to get used in free verse poetry for the most part it are, are, is the way they, they're used to break up speech in a way that reveals psychology mm. Uh, mm. either because you're, you're, you're splitting open a potential double meaning or because you're, as Nichols and Baker said, you're slowing things down so that it takes us a minute to get to the next step of the dialogue. Mm. But that is, I, I think there is similarity there. And it may be that the, as you know, with you, you said that comics are, in, you know, clearly bear some resemblance to storyboards for movies. And you're, it may be that you're doing something similar with with image where you're you're breaking it down or sl- you're slowing it down or speeding it up and giving us these little moments to focus on part of what makes for a really good a really good pairing of dialogue with or narration with with image is that you know what to leave out you know you know how much space to leave between those two so that they're not perfectly redundant but mm. they're also not totally disjointed
0: absolutely i i think it's rare that i've seen illustrators take advantage of the, of the word bubble and the, and the type and the font. But I've seen it a little bit and it's definitely had an impact on me. The, the most brilliant, or maybe uh, the, most, uh, the most brilliant slash also the, sh- the most show-offy version I've seen is the comic, the, the middle and later issues of the comic series Cerebus. Uh, not Severus, but Cerebus um, by Dave Sim. And uh, I'll have a warning here if, if this makes it into the podcast that, that, that is made by a pretty vile misogynist person <laughs> who, who I'm sort of wondering if he'll ever, ever be adopted by the, by the alt-right uh, of, of modern day because he, he sort of followed his divorce by creating this sort of this sort of like army of super violent uh, feminists in his uh, comics, which was also a comic about an aardvark uh, it's this like it's this gladiator aardvark character. So talk about taking a, a silly idea and not only bringing it into the into reality but 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 bringing your own sort of reactionary fears into the comic it's kind of it's a fascinating uh, psychological study of an artist like losing his mind, but he goes after those word bubbles in those in those letters. In a way, I've never, I've never seen before. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Sometimes it's probably too much because he's, he's, he's really, he's very pleased that he can do this trick. If I were teaching comics to to teenagers, which I do sometimes, um, I, I make sure that they see at least a page of, uh, of Cerebus.
1: What's the, the the Blake line? You you never know what is enough until you know what is more than enough. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it seems seems. You know, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it, but there is something to the the appeal of ultra serious superhero movies now and that we, we talked a little bit in emails about uh the sense sometimes in some of these super serious movies of almost embarrassment at the subject matter
0: yeah yeah and i was telling you it was from when you said that it instantly reminded me of my upbringing which is which is a very protestant upbringing and uh i yeah i wondered what you thought about like my sort of parallel. Well, and
1: and so, so how did, I I was also raised very religiously. I was Catholic, but Mm -hmm. there, there were plenty, there was plenty of embarrassment and shame and humiliation growing up, but I'm just curious, how, how do you, how did you specifically see, yeah, what, what was, how exactly did embarrassment play in for you?
0: Well, uh, first I I should say that like, yeah, I, I think, I think there is a sort of unconscious embarrassment in, in like a Christopher Nolan or in, in these movies but but the fact that they're they're dealing with sort of like material that's supposed to be for children and they're they're in a way they're yeah. trying to they're trying to like mature it in the length of the movie they're trying to completely bring it into the adult world and, and and also give it some kind of sophistication some kind of like artistry that i don't know just like turns them into serious film filmmakers i suppose and i don't know yeah, that instantly reminded me of. the 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 way i saw my my inherited uh uh, faith expressed i was talking with someone a couple days ago and he talked about how he went to youth group in, in high school and his pastor had some sort of like really complicated mathematical equation for like how things predicted in the bible have come true and so uh, there, there's, <laughs> you're burying your head, your hands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, There's um, <laughs> that there's a, it, so there's not even faith involved. It's, it's just actually, it's, it's just, what's the economic term. It's like a, like uh, a, pr-
1: a proof or a.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah for yeah. sure. And I just, when you said that, I'd never, I had never thought about that before, but I, I and this is, so this is still kind of like a, a fresh thought for me, but I, I wonder if that was involved in the kind of anxious sort of stranglehold on, on Christianity that I saw uh, in the churches that I that I was raised in, you know, people people always say Protestants are are super literal, and I think they're they're only literal about certain things, the things that sort of work for their the way that they approach the status quo and the way they approach power and stuff like that. But but, but they are indeed literal about they think they're literal. So they, I think that that's enough. You know, it, if you if you zoom out from that, they are dealing with they're dealing with something that is that can't be seen, that can't be It can't be proven something that is is ancient and and strange. They're dealing with these weird, you know, old, ancient stories. Perhaps there's an embarrassment to that. And so you have to uh, surround it with a lot of hellfire and I guess also mathematical equations in order to make you feel sort of grown up about it.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you ever saw the movie or this, maybe you didn't need to see a movie, maybe this is more of your own experience, but if you ever saw the documentary Hell House, Oh no, I haven't. No. Oh, you would. It's worth seeing. It's <laughs> uh, it's actually. I mean, it's it, it, it is more moving than one might expect. But it's a it follows this tradition in this this small town. Very, oh, I think I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, they're very very Christian, very very devout, um, and they're some kind of fundamentalist even you know evangelical Christian. But they have a fundraiser they do every year, which is an elaborate haunted house, informed by Christian virtues, but it is genuinely you know big boy pants terrifying (laughs) like big horrible bloody you know demons but it's about you know being gay or having abortions or masturbating like the horror is full-scale grown-up style uh Uh, so it's it's a good documentary but it does i think i think you're right about that you know i think about the if you read some of the like old commentary or or mockery of Darwin or, or arguments about Darwinism. I think today, like it, it, during the Bush administration, when I think it was like when Do- Richard Dawkins was publishing The God Delusion, we were kind of at the height of like acrimonious debate over evolution in school textbooks and atheism and religion, all this stuff. Uh, I think the the debate was that the the offense that evolution had committed was that it seemed to replace God. But I think if you go back closer to when it first came out, people were really deeply scandalized by the suggestion that we descended from apes.
0: Sure. Yeah. Like there was something like, yeah.
1: like anatomically humiliating yeah. about being told that you descended from apes. And I think right. that, that we, we are increasingly absurd laughable creatures in the universe. And yet I think it becomes harder for us to bear laughable cartoonish depictions of ourselves. Like we, we Mm. want even our cartoons to be grown up and serious (laughs) in a way. Like there's, there is something as, as dumb and un, uh, like you can't redeem the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into James Bond. Like you can't make (laughs) them cool and sexy. There does seem to be some new version of it where they're like, really gross and scary looking i haven't seen it yeah yeah the still that you sent sure, me is all I see. yeah <laughs> but but there doesn't like with it or like with an aardvark being your hero or some mm-hmm. of these some of these old like comic premises you can't dignify it you can't mm. you cannot but be embarrassed by it and i think we that makes us squirm a little bit because i think it hadn't occurred to me until you were saying this that it's 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 partly our, ourselves like we want to be Batman is sort of like corporate power and government power, but he's also American power, right? And I think like we don't want to seem goofy and dumb and cartoonish and vain and spoiled. We want to seem gritty and cool and and grown up (laughs) to ourselves. It's true. But we're just, but we're a fucking aardvark. We're we're actually just a a ninja turtle.
0: (laughs) At the end of the day, we are. We are an ark yeah. Uh, uh, we are all one art yeah. And indeed, it's called the Scopes Monkey Trial. So, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the monkey was. Uh, I guess it was. It was a. It was a, star, it was a nightmarish image uh, that were that were monkeys. But I guess, like you said, I mean, I don't know if I if I'm trying to eradicate anything, and I don't. You know, maybe I would not have come to this obsessive fun I've been having over over Batman and Ninja Turtles if it weren't for this period that we're living in, if it weren't for. Christopher Nolan, you know, I sort of believe in in these things having lives beyond the original source material, you know. I don't believe that like no. that Batman is in his purest form when he was in the detective comics in, the, in 1939. I think there's something to be said about an artwork having a life form. Um, there's a really good writer who's a music critic named Grail Marcus and he talks a lot about the lifespan of songs and he he's very much an anti-ownership kind of person. He loves the story of an artist and a musician creating a piece of work, but he he never sees the work as as finished at that point. He writes these biographies of songs, and he kind of tells stories about how they're reinterpreted and covered, and like what was going on when they were covered, what was going on in the audience when they first heard that cover or something like that. Uh, I don't know. That's sort of inspirational for me.
1: And there's something about, I don't, I don't know that for whatever historical reasons, the legal restrictions on songs are different so that if you use the actual recording of a song, then that's very, very tightly regulated, but it's much looser if you want to cover a song Mm -hmm. so that that, like, that's part of why we end up having all these great, really different covers of old songs. And in a way, like, boy, it would be great if we didn't keep. Keep revising copyright law so that Mickey Mouse remained private. Property. Oh boy! Like I mean, that is truly yeah. that is that defines <laughs> copyright law. It's like we keep extending it in order not to let Mickey Mouse be public property. But I think it would. I would be interested in seeing what maybe what happened with some of these if suddenly the copyright's lapsed. You know?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, if you wa- if you want to have another obsessive conversation like this, I I I cannot stop obsessing over Walt Disney. I think he's an absolutely absolutely fascinating character and just like <laughs> and just like the most American if, if anyone was a manifestation of the United States of America it's Walt Disney and he's a truly tragic figure but anyway oh, I'll, well, I'll, so I'll get going off of
1: it my my what I, f- I find myself doing with with guests who come on and I did this I had an interview just the other day I did this again but I, I now have a project I want you to do oh uh-huh. I, I want you to write whether it's as a comic or something, I, I want you to write the, the, like, cartoon depiction of the tragedy of Walt Disney.
0: Yeah. Like I want you to, like, yeah. like,
1: write, like, a personal story about mm-hmm. him in some way.
0: You know, I've I've, I've tried I've tried to do pieces of it. Uh, I was very fascinated by the union strike. I've, I've done I've done some political comics, and I, I talk a lot about like labor movements and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and his politics just,
1: are pretty horrible, if I recall.
0: Yes, and he uh, he is the son of a uh, an abusive father. He was also a, a, a socialist of his of his time of the early early nineteen hundreds. And there's an early Angela and I saw it when we were in San Francisco. There's a a museum of of Disney things it's actually owned by the disney family and not the walt disney museum and they had an illustration that walt that walt did when he was 14 years old his dad's like socialist or labor labor focused uh, newspaper that his dad was involved with and it's this drawing of a i don't know i don't know what's a a drawing of just some character but it's a beautiful drawing. and i hadn't seen a lot of his actual drawings but anyway just the knowledge that he was was so anti-union and pro- progress progress at the at the expense of laborers was he acting out against his father i don't know (laughs) it's his parents his parents were killed in a in a freak accident in a house purchased by disney i mean I i could go on and on it's just like a absolutely fascinating tragic story he yeah was i want you to write this
1: <laughs> book or it's something I mean, yeah i guess
0: what i was trying to say i, I I've, I've pitched this before i've pitched this very thing to newspapers and magazines and they're like are you kidding I, I don't want to get sued by disney they'll come after us and they do they play hardball against against anyone that says a bad word about you know, that's been their well, they, but they play
1: offense. There's a different, well, I mean, yeah, no, that's true. They, they Disney may be like the Scientologists and that you just like, it's not Precisely. worth, it's not worth the trouble. I want to, I would love to read or see some version of this from you.
0: I, I probably will have to do it at some point because it's like, like, like you're experiencing now. I can't, I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> I, I said, that maybe this is a way that will help, that'll help me yeah. rest. Will help me put yeah. put him to rest, as it
1: was. At some point, Angela will will get to stop hearing about it. And that'll, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Oh, poor Angela. Yeah.
1: What are you What are you working on in one capacity or another these days?
0: Like a lot of people who are privileged and can do a lot of their work from home throughout the pandemic, I I, I had more time on my hands than I, than I knew what to do with, and so I jumped into making my first fiction comic, kind of a longer story. Than I have in in some time. Most of my comics are are nonfiction. It's interesting. We're talking about Christianity. The last thing I've had published was for the Nib, and it was about kind of a, a history of, of various public um, political expressions within Christianity, and it's sort of based off of conversations I've had with with some scholars and some and some Christians. And before that, I did a thing for the New Yorker about how silly it is to be teaching during the pandemic. And so like, I, I do a lot of things about teaching and I do a lot of things about labor and uh, it's usually just, it's those are just some of my interests. And it's, I, I, I do, I, I'm involved in that work a little bit and it's just, those are things I'm thinking about. But I've, I've had a uh, story in my, kind of kicking around my, my mind for the last like five or six years and I'm finally putting it into about a, about a 20 page comic story which is a a short it's a yeah it's a short story and i've been slowly just posting on an instagram it's called the rights r-i-t-e-s it's about three siblings uh spreading the ashes of their of their recently deceased mother and they're they're having to follow increasingly strange instructions and that's that's all it is and uh yeah should be done with that in the next hopefully next month honestly and then i'll clean it up and see if i can See if I can get it somewhere, and then uh, then I'll be back to just my other freelance illustration lifestyle, which is painting a lot of people's pets. That's my primary. Oh right, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. You, this is this is your <laughs> yeah my specialty. And, yeah. It's, it's
0: true. My bread and butter is I, I make anthropomorphic illustrations of of uh, people's dogs and cats or or any pet honestly. I'll draw any pet. I love doing it, and uh, I'm hoping to grow that business a little bit more. because It's been good to me. Uh, all of which was the, an idea of uh, by my wife angela Flurry. so
1: i knew, i know you've you've done uh, animal drawings for my daughters who who love them and who have who've have, uh, since uh, demanded that you come back and do more drawings for them at some point I, so, I look which forward. we would we would love for you to do
0: this was great i angela and i have been loving slee rickets and uh, so i oh, i thanks. came to you as as a fan First and foremost, we always try to put song lyrics to your Slee Ricketts theme. And so uh, every time I listen, (laughs) I I try to uh, add lyrics. Someday I'll come up with good lyrics. Please, yeah.
1: The theme song is by a producer named Eternal, E-T-R-N-L. Speaking of which, that's public domain that he made available. I found a little tiny snippet of it. Yeah, oh, so I try. I try to. I always put his name in the show notes, but he yeah. just puts. He just makes a lot of music for free out there.
0: Right. Also, I was going to ask you: Are you ever going to print Slee Ricketts' t-shirts? Uh,
1: sure, if people want them, I don't. You know, but I am mean, yeah, uh, not. Either. I'm not opposed to it.
0: I, well, you have at least one one vote here. So, um, <laughs> right. thanks just for being down for this and for inviting an, an, someone who's very much a novice to to poetry, like me, to your poetry heavy podcast um, i think i
1: think as a novice in poetry you're like socrates and like you're the you may be the <laughs> wisest man by acknowledging that you know nothing because because it's certainly yeah. for the people who think they know things
0: Bef- before you kick me off though i remember the last time i was in your house i saw that you had a robert Bly book do you yes, and yes. you you have it oh you i
1: have it well i have a i have his translation of the selected Rilke and then I also have I didn't know that he translated Rilke it's either his translation or his I think it's his translation it's either that or he or he edited the selection somewhere but then I also have a book he wrote called Iron John, that sure, my, Iron John. my dad uh my dad gave me that I, I've still never read but yeah what, oh, was, okay. what was it that yeah what was I was the, just
0: interested I was just interested if you had any kind of relationship with him I I, I have a friend who is very much into him and gave me a book of his to to read and I'm just I like to talk to anyone that has any kind of knowledge of him because it's just a fascinating topic to me the kind of fraught like men's movement thing that he was involved in and I just have a lot of conflicted feelings about it and I'm always looking for nuanced perspectives on it and I've only heard people really hate him or like this guy I really love
1: him. I don't no, I, I have not read that much of him, and I don't know that much about. Him. I know that I know of his involvement in the men's movement and Iron John, but I don't. No. I don't even know what that amounts to, really. I do. I'll say my my biggest exposure to him was in like 2008, maybe 2007, whenever it was that AWP was in New York City. I I went to AWP and saw him read to a huge room, and he had everybody in the palm of his hand. He looked like a an elderly Willy Wonka. I remember he had a poem that ended with some. It was something about like a some dream life, and he committed some obscure crime. And then the the, the last line of the poem was, "And the sentence was a thousand years of joy." And every single poem he finished, the response by the crowd was a collective, "Oh." <laughs> And it, you know, it's impressive because he he was he was getting a response from the crowd, which which unfortunately a lot of people don't even bother to try to do anymore. But it was yeah, it yeah, it, it made me aware of a, a a particular kind of response. I guess it's possible to get that is not necessarily the, the one I would would hope for. I think mm. I think like pe- people go people go to that, or they go to the same way if you go to the uh, the arena stage in D.C. the big beautiful stage theater there. They have three stages now. Uh, a lot of the shows they do are shows that are basically meant to flatter the very rich, very liberal audience, and because you mm. hear a lot of the same
0: <laughs> ah,
1: sound, yeah. they, they're, 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 they're they're being soothed by their own perceptiveness. Yes.
0: Uh,
1: so yeah, that, but that's that's about all I could say about Robert Bly. I'd be that. <laughs> and the Bly, he was the, the Black Mountain School, I think, wasn't he involved with, or was that just Creeley? Yeah. I forget.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. indeed. Uh, maybe I'll do, maybe I'll
1: do a, a Robert Bly deep dive at some point and bring you back on.
0: <laughs> I mean, if you, if you ever do write to me, cause I have, I mean, there, there are other figures that I'm familiar with, much more familiar with than than Robert Bly that are sort of attached to this. And so I, I was sort of unwittingly found myself like uh, uh, venturing into these literal woods because these men's movement things like would have happened in the in the woods <laughs> and this is separate
1: uh, is this separate from the men's rights thing? yes like, okay yes
0: you, yeah and it has its own there's a really wonderful harper's harper's piece about the sort of modern equivalent of bligh i mean Bly, you know was was lefty anti-anti-vietnam but has had this kind of back to nature back to tribal sort of reaction to to feminism that wasn't wasn't exactly an anti-feminist thing but it was sort of like it sort of wanted to run parallel to feminism but run backwards into what he what he saw as a as a uh, a loss of initiation in male circles and a loss of uh, elders uh which i think is a legitimate well, a, a legitimate diagnosis but the prognosis is, is sort of strange a little creepy maybe well it
1: may be it may be one of those problems where you the, the diagnosis is accurate but there's not a there's not a good cure. No, I don't like yeah.
0: I don't think there is. there's this there's this writer, a really good writer named Barrett uh, Swanson who who went to a a modern sort of like West Coast kind of uh, men's it's called Mankind, I think, the Mankind Project. And it was a lot of just like, you know, we've gotta make ourselves like decent citizens, we've gotta make ourselves decent for, for women because it's so hard for women, we've got to make ourselves decent for people of color, it's so hard for people of color. And it it turned into this like sort of really odd like rage filled like kind of primal scream sort of thing you know similar to the 1970s psychological movements mm. of, uh, of of uh, primal scream and anyway yeah i i love that stuff <laughs> i i get i get really into like psychological movements uh. i
1: i don't know how much of this is an illusion but like looking back through art history and literary history there is a sense of whether or not there's initiation, there is a sense of a, a, a lineage of masters and apprentices and you oh, know, yeah. the, the younger, you know, R- Robert Lowell camps out on Alan Tate's lawn and uh, John Dunn was the headmaster at Milton School, I think. And there, like there, there is this feeling of like the, the junior and the senior. And I have, I certainly have felt as in, in my writing life, the, the absence of any kind of master Victor. like i've never never had anything that quite was a man i've had some decent teachers and some people i really love and writers i've known but I, I never really had a proper master i don't know if that's something that even has has occurred to you or, or been uh, something you've I, thought about
0: I, I sort of stumbled into a uh an apprenticeship um ah. actually actually the the man that i'm describing was very very much attracted to Robert Bly was, was sort of my uh, de facto master as, as it were, he was a guy that just kind of noticed my comics drawings at these like groups that uh, I used to go to and, and said like, you should draw a graphic novel. Do you know how to do it? Do you know how to use Photoshop? And I was like, no, I don't know how to do any of that. I was 22 at the time. Um, and he was like, well, let me, let me help you do it. You know? And he, and it sort of started a relationship. We're, we're sort of friends now. I I, don't, I sort of, see him more at eye level anymore but i definitely looked up to him at that at that time and uh i don't know where where i'd be with without without his uh without his guidance so it's kind of funny to look back at him because he's such an emotional mess uh you know he really only had a a sort of aesthetics and (laughs) he, he had sort of a short list of things that he could kind of guide me through but he's become he's become a pretty good friend he's in his 60s now and i wonder if if that's part of his attraction to it is this guy's kind of Robert Blas, uh, yeah, his his sort of looking around the landscape and freaking out about this 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 obvious lack in our culture. And I I don't I don't think it's I think the whole master and apprenticeship thing comes packaged with robust community. I think the problem yeah. is not just it's just that. It's just we're we're constantly deconstructing community and and village life all around us. Yeah. It's, but yeah, like I say, it seems like the ship has sailed a long time ago. <laughs>
1: That was my conversation with Steve Tier. Again, you can follow Steve on Instagram at Steve Tier, S T E V E T E A R E. That was our show for the week. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.